Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8th, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Indochino. John, do you remember Indochino? I, of course I remember Indochino. Do you remember how good you looked in that Indochino suit? <laughs> looked fantastic. You did. So did you two. That's because they're making it easy to get a suit made to your exact measurements at a great price. You can choose from hundreds of top quality fabrics and customize all the details, including your lapel, your jacket lining, Peak your monogram. Lapel, notch lapel. And more. If only we knew someone who was getting married next year. That's true. Indochino oh. has been featured in major publications. Maybe someone who's a little shy about talking about Forbes it publicly. and Fast Company and are now the largest made-to-measure menswear company. Here is how it works. I only wear Indochino suits. Tommy, you buying it. You pick a showroom <laughs> or shop online at Indochino.com. You pick your fabric. You choose your customizations. You submit your measurements and you place your order and wait for it to arrive in just a few weeks. How huh. easy is that? Amazing. Huh. Then you look great. Right now, our <laughs> listeners can get any Indochino made-to-measure suit from just $329 during Indochino's massive Black Friday sale when you enter Crooked Convo. That's our code. Go to Indochino.com and enter the code Crooked Convo or go to any Indochino showroom. That's 60% off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit, plus shipping is free. Indochino.com. Use the promo code Crooked Convo for any made-to-measure suit from just $329 with free shipping. It's an incredible deal. Incredible deal. I fit you better you than to, anything off the rack. You could go Pretty to one of their showrooms. Deal. I was in Boston Saturday night, walking down the street. There was an Indochino showroom right there. There were hordes of people outside, stepping all here. over each other to try to get really? it. Really? <laughs> just, just, just screaming, bring me the swatches. <laughs> bring me the swatches. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's bring me the sw- Do it in a Boston thing. Say bring me the swatches, but like, like a person Bring me the swatches doesn't really have it lend itself to a good Boston. Bring me the swatches, it? you bastard. It will fit you better than anything off the rack ever could. Why won't anyone say, bring me the swatches, you bastard? Because uh, it's just not really a good one. Not, the hours aren't there for uh, it. involve the Bruins or something. Okay. Just put the swatches right in my car. I'm Brian Boitler, editor-in-chief of Crooked.com, and you're listening to Crooked Conversations. For today's episode, I talked to Don Verrilli, who served as U.S. Solicitor General under Barack Obama from 2011 through 2016. We discussed his successful advocacy for the Affordable Care Act and same-sex marriage, the threat to the rule of law under President Trump, and what the Trump era means for the legal profession. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Don. Thanks for taking some time with us. Oh, my pleasure, Brian. I'm a big fan of the pods. <laughs> Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. Friend of the pods, plural. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll get you a t-shirt or something. So. I got it already. Okay, okay. All right, all right. Um, so you were, you were Solicitor General in the Obama administration from mid-2011 until mid-2016. That's right? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. Um, so to situate our listeners, uh, can you tell us like what the, the U.S. Solicitor General does and why it's an important job? Sure. The Solicitor General is an official in the Justice Department. And when you're the Solicitor General, you represent the United States government in front of the Supreme Court. You argue the big cases on behalf of the United States, and then you supervise all of the litigation that the United States government conducts in the Supreme Court. And you supervise in a more general way all the litigation that the United States government conducts in the courts of appeals around the country. Um, so if, if any of our listeners are familiar with the name Robert Bork, it's most likely because he was nominated to the Supreme Court by Ronald Reagan and was gen- then rejected by the Senate. Um, 
uh, and he has sort of become the object of a lot of myth-making about the Senate confirmation process. But he was Solicitor General, too. He and, was. Uh, and notably, he was the senior-most Justice Department official during the infamous Saturday Night Massacre. Um, he was the last one willing to follow Richard Nixon's orders and fire the Watergate special counsel. Right. Fired Archibald Cox. Um, and we have a different special counsel today. We have another president who has tried to kind of pierce the veil that's supposed to exist between the White House and the Justice Department. Um, he fired an FBI director. He's mused about pardoning himself, his family, people around him. Uh, he wants to prosecute enemies and investigations of himself. Can you reflect on the current threats to DOJ independence and the rule of law um, and talk a little bit about your levels of confidence that the DOJ as an institution um, and under its current leadership can withstand those threats? Yeah, it's really important, you know, because a lot of times we think about the rule of law and our devotion to the rule of law as a nation, as a government. One way we think about it is that, well, we have structural guarantees in place that protect the rule of law. We have the separation of powers so that if one branch gets overly aggressive and asserts itself, another branch can step in and, and corral them. And, you know, of course, at some level that's true, and over some stretch of time that's true. But a big part of our fidelity to the rule of law, I think, and this comes out of my experience spending several years in the Justice Department, ultimately is going to depend on the character of the people making the judgments. You know, one thing that is really important about holding one of these high-level positions in the Justice Department and the executive branch generally is that you have enough courage to do the right thing at the right time. And the example you brought up about the firing of Archibald Cox sort of shows you the importance of that. Imagine how our history would have unfolded if instead of resigning uh, as Attorney General Elliot Richardson and then as Deputy Attorney General uh, William Ruckelshaus, that they had just carried out the president's orders. It would have taken what was already a serious constitutional crisis and made it exponentially worse. And it was their character, their refusal to carry out in order that they believe threatened the rule of law that made a big difference in the moment. And so right now, I think we have to think about um, that issue of character. And one thing that's really worrisome to me, at least, is what's going on right now with respect in particular to this question of appointing a second special counsel to investigate the Uranium One and the, and the emails, et cetera, you know, I think anybody who's taken a look at that understands that those allegations are not on the level. And, and you have the president calling for the appointment of a special counsel with respect to those very things. And, you know, it seems like a pretty clear case for an attorney general to stand up and say, no, I'm going to assert the need for the Department of Justice to be independent. That's what the rule of law is all about. You know, people use that phrase, the rule of law, can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. But one thing it means at its irreducible core is that we're a government of laws and not men. And what that means is that the president can't use the power of government prosecution to advance his own personal or political ends. And the most important responsibility of an attorney general is to assert the independence of the department in the face of, of, of pressure of that kind. Now, you know, I know what some people are saying about what's going on now. They're saying, well, by asking the career lawyers in the Justice Department to do an evaluation of the claims, Attorney General Sessions is just creating a, 
a record that he can then use to say no to the president. Um, well, I hope that's what happens. Uh, but, you know, the, one way of thinking about that is you're hiding behind the career people and you're making it their call instead of your call when it's just obvious what the right call is. And so that's what I mean about the importance of character. I really feel like in a situation like this, the moment demands that someone in this position act with courage. The I, I take it from what you just said that you were not fully satisfied with um, with Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Uh, a, the letter that he sent to Congress about this issue, what he testified to before the House Judiciary Committee on uh, this week as, as, as we record this, the week of November 9th, that, that his responses to members of Congress in that hearing weren't fully satisfactory to you. Is that does that speak to your views about uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, or is it just that Trump himself has sort of corrupted uh, the the whole issue and and kind of made it impossible for anybody to have faith that uh, that the political leadership at the Justice Department and the career people aren't being kind of uh, Played for puppets or something. Yeah, so I think both. Um, you know, I think clearly the president, the, clearly the president is exerting pressure that holds the potential to have that kind of corrupting effect. Uh, and you know, think about this from the perspective of the career lawyers being asked to carry out this task. I mean, you know, they know what the answer is. Uh, in fact, the whole email thing has already been thoroughly investigated, so they know that they're being asked to do something that's not on the level. So, you know, just think about how that makes them feel in carrying out uh, their duties. They're supposed to be there impartially and fearlessly representing the interests of the United States and respecting the rule of law, and they're being put in a compromised position. Now, uh, to, to his credit, some of the things that Attorney General Sessions said in the House Judiciary Committee hearing uh, were helpful and that he was pushing back on some of the suggestions that it was a foregone conclusion that a special counsel was needed. So that's good in one sense. But the reason I'm concerned about it is that we shouldn't be in this uh, position right now. It should, this should have been cut off a long time ago. It should have been cut off with an act of courage. If it resulted in the attorney general being fired, then so be it. You know, that's that's how Elliot Richardson did it. And that's how Williams Rockless House did it. And you know. I mean, imagine you're, I, 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 instead of Brian Boyler from Crooked Media, I'm Jeff Sessions, and I'm saying to you, you know, I recused myself from all matters having to do with uh, the, the Trump campaign and the Clinton campaign. And if I come back and say uh, Hillary Clinton deserves uh, to be investigated, uh, it's going to look rotten. And if I come back and say that uh, she doesn't, I'm going to look like I'm overcorrecting for my role in the campaign. And so I kicked it to the prosecutors so that it wouldn't look like it had the taint of politics. Uh, would that – I mean I, I don't know that that would be what, how he would explain himself. But if I'm trying to be uh, as generous as possible to, to Jeff Sessions, that might be uh, you know, not just to, not just to you know, shield himself from, the, um, from having to make the call, but from honoring a recusal that he entered into early in his tenure. Or does that mean it should just go to Rod Rosenstein? Well, so right, point one, <laughs> what's he doing? If he's recused, what's he doing? Right. Why, why isn't Rod Rosenstein making the judgment about whether to have this inquiry go forward? And why isn't Rod Rosenstein responding to the House Judiciary Committee members who sent the letter? So that, you know, that's problem number one. And then problem number two is, you know, I, I understand that perception issue. 
and I respect it, and it's real, and I'm sure some thinking on that part is going into this. But I do think at the end of the day, it's up to the attorney general to protect the integrity of the Department of Justice, both real and perceived. And by allowing this process to go even partway down the road, it compromises that. If you were uh, still a senior DOJ official, um, but in an environment like this, where the you know the administration that you worked for was doing things that you view as like highly improper, what would you be do? What would you be preparing for? Um, and I, I'm not asking you to backseat drive anyone in public service today, and what you know, try to tell them what to do. But how would you interpret your obligation to protect DOJ as an institution? the rule of law, the integrity of the democracy, as somebody, you know, Senate confirmed, very senior in the administration um, with, with, with so much, you know, kind of rotten business going on? I think that when you have a senior position, really a position of any consequence in the Department of Justice, and you're in a situation that you are not comfortable with, you've got two things you can do. First, you can try to persuade uh, within the confines of the building, try to persuade other people, other decision makers about where the line is and why it shouldn't be crossed. And then the second thing you can do is you can, you, you know, and you really have to do if you want to carry out your responsibilities with integrity, is you have to decide for yourself that there's a line that you will not cross and that you will not countenance being crossed. And now, I'm sure that people in the Justice Department now are doing that. They're trying to figure out where that, that they're, I'm sure that they are engaging in that kind of internal persuasion, and I'm sure that they each are thinking about where's my line. Um, but you really have to have one, and you know, even in a situation that doesn't remotely approximate where, at least from the outside, it seems we are now, um, you know, I had a line, I had to draw lines, and the one that I think about most saliently was uh, in the aftermath of a case I argued about um, the Foreign Surveillance Act, Amnesty International against Clapper, where I made a representation to the Supreme Court that the government actually disclosed in criminal cases when it used information derived from this kind of surveillance, it disclosed that fact, which would allow for constitutional challenges to the surveillance. I learned after the argument, after the case was decided, that we weren't, the government wasn't actually doing that. And so I just resolved in my own mind that the government had to get its policy into line with what we represented the law required. And if it didn't, I was going to have to resign. And so, you know, you, you just have to figure out for yourself in these kinds of situations, where's my line? And then if the line's crossed, you've got to resign. And this argument that you're going to stay in there because you can help ameliorate things, it's true, but it's only true to a point. And, it's, and, if you, if, and if that point doesn't exist, then it's just not true anymore. Right. Um, the, the, as an institution, the Justice Department does seem to be pushing back enough or, or resistant enough to, uh, you know, the, the White House's intrusions that, you know, Bob Mueller's been on the job as special counsel investigating uh, Russian interference in the election for several months now. Um, one of your former colleagues in the, uh, the Solicitor General – General's Office, Michael Dreben, uh, has joined that investigation. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us what you thought when you heard the news that somebody that you worked so closely with was going to be involved in that investigation and what it told you about the nature of the inquiry yeah. that Robert Mueller's making. 
Yeah, Michael is an extraordinary lawyer. He's one of the smartest, most able lawyers I have ever met. And what he brings to the special counsel team is just an unmatched understanding of federal criminal law, sort of horizon to horizon, how each federal criminal provision interacts with every other one, understanding in particular of the federal criminal provisions that might be implicated by the conduct that the special counsel is investigating. So I I just thought it was a brilliant decision to bring him on, um, both because of that knowledge and because he's got extraordinarily good judgment. And it's the kind of thing where, to me at least, with somebody like Michael Dreben in the mix, and some of the others, Andrew Weissman, somebody I know well too and have extraordinary respect for, if at the end of this process, if Bob Mueller and Michael Dreeben and Andrew Weissman and the rest of those folks tell us that there's nothing there, I, I'm confident there's nothing there. Well, to be fair, they have already right. told us that there's, there's something, something there. there. Right. Well, um, I, let's put this. Whatever they tell further, us is right. there, is there. Yes. And whatever they tell us isn't there, isn't there. So you, this, your frame of reference, as we mentioned, for a lot of this stuff yeah. is your experience at DOJ, specifically in the Solicitor General's office. Uh, some Solicitor Generals become famous when they make the leap. Uh, that Thurgood Marshall made and Elena Kagan did from the SG's office onto the Supreme Court. Uh, Your notoriety and the main reason we wanted to do this conversation stems from the stakes of the cases you argued and won uh, at a sort of very fraught moment of ideological tension in the country. Um, And you were representing a liberal administration against a a conservative court that wasn't kind of, you know, naturally inclined to to be sympathetic uh, to the administration. Um, and so for, you know, for listeners who aren't uh, familiar with Supreme Court jurisprudence in the Obama years, uh, you, ad- you advocated to save the Affordable Care Act from two different uh, legal challenges, and you argued um, for the view that same-sex marriage is a constitutionally protected right. That's just three cases among dozens. Right? Um, and I want to talk in general terms about, uh, you know, the challenge of persuading a court that is on balance kind of ideologically hostile to your objectives. Um, but I wanted to talk about those experiences, um, those three yeah. arguments specifically. Um, so start with the first Affordable Care Act challenge. I was one of the reporters covering that first challenge. It was uh, NFIB versus Sebelius. Um, and that was a, a constitutional challenge uh, which held, correct me if I'm misremembering, that the, that the law should be wiped off the books because it exceeded Congress's regulatory power. They essentially said Congress can't force anyone to buy a private product. Um, and the stakes were essentially, if you lost, there would be no affordable care act. The cause of universal health care would be set back decades. It was a, it was a, a big effing deal moment as Joe Biden would say. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, I, I remember covering it live from the Supreme court and, you know, leaving after the first day and the other reporters and analysts, they really thought you'd blown it. Right. Um, uh, they, they said, uh, they said literally and figuratively that, figuratively that you've choked. Um, I, can you reflect on that experience? You know, hey, first of all, I'm, I'm not sure you've ever been given a proper chance to respond to the naysayers, but the floor is yours, actually, <laughs> if, if you'd like to. So that whole thing was an incredible experience. And, you know, when I think back on my time as SG, as you said, I was so lucky and blessed. I got to do so many landmark cases. Not, nothing to do with me. I just happened to be in the job when these cases came. But but I did get to do amazing cases. Uh, and even given that, the experience that I'm most grateful for was 
the first Affordable Care Act case. Um, and that includes the fact that you know, basically after the oral argument, it was actually on the second day of the three days that uh, the first day we argued about jurisdiction right, was on right. the second it was, day. It was, it was the first day of the merits. Of the, of the, of the, of the merits, of right. the merits yeah. of the case. So, you know, basically, uh, you know, that was the, the experience of going through that kind of uh, press criticism was awful. You know, <laughs> it was really rough. And uh, it, uh, you know, I was quite shaken by it um, in the moment and uh, for a while afterwards. And, and I understand why it happened because, you know, the way the thing played out was I had been doing all this preparation. I knew I was going to have to argue three days in a row and that was going to be a challenge in itself. And each of the three days, the issue was like a separate case mm-hmm. each of the three days. And so the way we did things in the SG's office was for every argument, you did two moot courts to prepare practice arguments, mock arguments. And those were themselves very grueling. And so I had done six, you know, two for each of the three days. And then I had, for good measure, done an extra moot court about the uh, mandate issue. So I had done seven moot courts in the kind of two-week run-up. And then I argued on the first day. And basically, by the morning of the second day, my voice was totally shot. It was just shot. And so I got up to the podium to start the argument on the second day. And I just seized up. I couldn't get the words out. And I took a sip of water and it went down the wrong way. And so I was going, <coughs> you know, literally, <laughs> it was terrible. And I knew it was happening as it was happening. You know, I could feel myself kind of falling into this pit as it was happening. And then I know that you know, feel where you yeah. start sweating. Yeah, and I just could see it. I just was, you know, I felt it happening. And then I said, okay, I, you know, I got to climb out of this pit. And I think the reality of it is, and I went back and actually listened to the argument for the first time just a few months ago. Um, And it kind of conformed to my recollection of it, which was that the first five minutes or so were awful. You know, I was just disoriented and I was trying to climb back into the thing. And then I gradually kind of got, you know, uh, got a hold of, uh, got a foothold and I got, got myself climbing back up the cliff and eventually I felt like I pulled myself out of the pit and then, I thought the last 15 minutes or so, this was an hour-long argument, usually the 30 minutes per side, but this was an hour per side. I felt like the last 10 or 15 minutes I was actually saying exactly what I wanted to say. And then particularly when we got into the tax power part of the argument in the last 10 minutes where we were making the alternative justification for the law's constitutionality. Um, and then I felt like my rebuttal argument that day um, was really pretty pretty strong where, you know, I argued first, the other side argued, then I had a few minutes to come back at the end, and I felt really good about that. But, you know, I understand people's impressions were formed in those first few minutes, and then I think many of the people covering the case were surprised at the level of hostility from the conservative justices. They thought that the case was kind of a laydown, and they were taken aback by that, and those two things fused together, I think. And... Um, so, you know, as I look back on it, yeah, you know, I wish those first few minutes hadn't happened, <laughs> but they also motivated me, you know, the, at the end of the third day, uh, at the very end of the case, I, uh, did a summary of like the whole position where I tried to frame the issue about the law as really being about what you understand liberty to mean. You're, an, and, you're anticipating uh, where I'm going uh, with that, right? No, 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 keep going, keep going. Because that, that was, um, 
So when I think about the things that I feel best about during my job, probably that was at the top because really at the end of the day, that's what that whole case was about to me, that um, you can understand liberty as just being freedom from government constraint or government regulation, or you can understand liberty as um, uh, being able to uh, enjoy the fullness of life and having the having the things like crippling medical conditions taken care of so that you can really live life to the fullest and that what the Affordable Care Act was about at the end of the day, what to me was that version, that vision of liberty. And so I just felt like given everything that had gone on over those three days and by, you know, by Wednesday, the swirl of criticism and whatnot was already crazy, you know, 24 hours later. And so I just kind of felt like, you know, what the hell? <laughs> this is what I really think. I'm going to say it. <laughs> and so I did. The uh, So, you know, new knowledge. I, I, I wasn't certain whether that was a moment of nerves or just like a, a series of unfortunate coincidences. Yeah. It sounds like it was mostly yeah. the latter. But – and you kind of addressed this. Did the, did it get into your head, the, the, the public criticism? You know, a lot of it was theater criticism. criticism. Yeah. A lot of it was trying to mind read the conservative justices. But it was pervasive – did it affect your perception of how the case was going, or did you did you realize that a lot of that chatter was kind of uninformed, psychoanalytical babble, and that once you got past the you know, the actual moment, that the you know the arguments on the merits that you were you were making them well and you were making them as well as you were ever going to make them, and that it wasn't going to be kind of determinative of the outcome. Where 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 was your head? So where my head was was that. It was evident from the oral argument that this was a close case. Mm-hmm. That could go either way. I had thought going in that it was going to be a close case. I was I had not my head was never in the place that this case is a laydown, that the government clearly has authority under the Commerce Clause and and there's no principled argument against us because it did have this feature that uh, was unprecedented that Congress had never before enacted a law requiring consumers to purchase anything under the commerce power. And I was worried that you could think about that as being a step beyond anything that the Supreme Court had ever blessed before. And now, you know, this is the part that sounds immodest, and I apologize, but it's for that reason I actually thought all along that the tax power argument, the alternative argument that this was just the imposition of a tax and that Congress has the unquestioned authority under the Constitution to do that was going to be really important because it was narrower. It was a narrower basis on which the court could uphold the law because if you uphold it under the tax power, all you're saying is that Congress can impose a tax. It can't impose affirmative regulations that aren't in the form of a tax. All it can do is impose a tax. And that. so I thought that was going to hold some attraction. And I thought that it was especially going to hold an attraction for the chief justice because it allowed us to make an argument that I thought and that, that my colleagues thought in the SG's office was going to resonate with the Chief Justice because we were saying, you know, so long as there's a way to read this statute so that it can be upheld as constitutional, then the court has a duty to read it that way because this is the, this is the decision of the democratically accountable branches right. of government. And so then I was able to actually weave that theme into the oral argument itself too. So, so you know, overall, I felt like between the briefs and the 
argument itself, and particularly the last 15, 20 minutes of the second day, that I was able to get the points out that I thought we needed to have out in, in their minds in order to prevail. So I thought coming out that it was a little closer than I thought it was going in, <laughs> but I didn't, you know, and, and I, and I, you know, look, the criticism of me was very painful. It was hard to go through on a personal level, but I was able even then to separate the two things out, um, the, where I thought the case would land and, and the personal stuff. I remember, I remember, I think it was the first day that uh, hearing uh, Justice Roberts basically say, "Well, if the if the mandate in the law isn't actually going to end up throwing people in jail, if the if 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 it's saying buy insurance or else or else what? There's no there's nothing on the other side of the threat other than tax liability." That he was essentially affirming your theory. Did you feel like politically because the political environment around the mandate was such that nobody in the administration wanted to talk about it as a tax? Correct. And so getting the public to think about it the way that Chief Justice ultimately did and the way you did. It just wasn't going to happen. You weren't going to get backup from Democrats in Congress or the White House. Did that make you feel like you were at a disadvantage, or is the court an environment such that you know the fact that there isn't a whole lot of public discussion about issues, uh, you know, doesn't really necessarily implicate the the way you know judges think? You know, I didn't think with respect to the tax power argument in particular that we were at a disadvantage because that was really a lawyer's argument mm-hmm. designed by lawyers for <laughs> lawyers, you know. Um, and and I did feel like, by the way, that that moment that you just described was the most important moment of the three days in the argument. And I felt it at the time because we had actually kind of consciously designed our strategy for that Monday argument to try to get them to focus on that very point that there's no consequence except for paying a tax and therefore it can be a tax in order to try to set up Tuesday and Wednesday. And when the chief justice said that, I thought, ah, he gets it, he gets it. Yeah. And then, you know, in the opinion itself, he cites to the transcript from Monday when we were talking about that very thing. And so, so that was good. But I will put the broader point that you made, in a broader context, I guess I would say, I was quite concerned about it. It wasn't just that um, people on the progressive side were unwilling to defend the law's attacks during that time frame in 2012. They were unwilling to defend the law, period. Right. You know, and it was a source of great frustration to me. Uh, Republican senators were getting up on the floor of the Senate several times a week and giving speeches about how the law was unconstitutional and we couldn't get the, our you know, Democratic counterparts to do the same thing, and uh, you know the, the the challengers to the law and the Republicans in Congress did an unbelievably good job of changing the tenor of public discourse around that law and creating a sense that it was of dubious legitimacy. And I, our folks just didn't push back. You know, the law was unpopular. It was an election year, presidential election year, and so I felt like we ended up quite disadvantaged by that, that the arguments against the law's constitutionality had a lot more resonance because the dialogue was so one-sided. It reminds me of uh, Justice Scalia repeating the broccoli, you know, this idea that the man, if if you can tell people to buy insurance, you can tell them to buy, that they have to eat broccoli. And, uh, you know, arguments that were on Fox News and stuff had seeped into the oral arguments in the Supreme Court, and there was nothing on the other side, not that there necessarily should have been, but that what you're saying, that that the the Supreme Court arguments ended up mirroring to kind of an uncomfortable extent the political arguments outside the the court. Um, And so so you had this bad political environment. You had – Judges who uh, justices who uh, 
who seemed more hostile once you got in front of them than you maybe anticipated. Um, and then you had the flurry of, you know, theater criticism when the arguments were done. Then you get the decision. And, you know, it not uh, not a not a, you know, grand slam home run law upheld on all grounds decision, but the law stood. What did you think when you heard the decision? So um, it was a deeply moving moment um, because, as you said in your introduction to this discussion, you know, what this law was about, is about, and hopefully always will be about, is ensuring that people who really need health care are able to get it. And one thing that happened to me during that time period, and starting in that time period, that spring of 2012, but it's continued even to this day, um, I meet people and they talk to me about the law and the effect it's had on their families. People say to me, well, you know, um, one person said to me, you know, I have a son and uh, he has MS and my wife and I are always worried about what's going to happen to him when we're no longer here. But with this law in place, we know we have a security that he'll always have access to quality health care. But other people talk to me about, you know, well, my sister has diabetes and she's finally getting treatment. And, you know, you hear story after story like that and you understand what this law is ultimately about. And, uh, and so... You can tell I'm getting a little choked up now. That's it was uh, was very moving then, still is. Crooked Conversations are brought to you by Policy Genius. Life insurance. If you're an adult, especially one with kids, you know you need it, but it's so easy to put it off. So easy. Shopping for life insurance is confusing. It takes forever. You have to speak to an agent just to get a quote. What a pain. Policy Genius lets you compare life insurance from the top providers online. How long does it take? As little as five minutes. Or if you're busy, guys, that's one minute per day for five days. I can I can afford that. First time I heard that joke. But the thing is, then you're spending your first ten seconds remembering what you did that other minute, and you end up with you end up with five mm. minutes and fifty. You know, you, right, you so know. that part's not for you. Okay. So if you find a policy you like and you want to know more, you can talk to one of their licensed experts. If you're just browsing, you don't have to talk to anyone. I'll tell you a policy I don't like. Browse away. Getting rid of the inheritance tax. <laughs> <laughs> they don't just do life insurance. You can get disability insurance, renters insurance, pet insurance, and compare. Health insurance. Did you so, get pet insurance for Luca yet? No. Oh, uh, we yes. No. I gotta do Just that. Put something in there to worry about. We do pet we do pet insurance now? No. I think you should. <laughs> no, I'm not doing it. <laughs> I'm gonna go browse online. I'm gonna go browse. It's gonna for take it. five minutes and I'll see if it, it's right it's right for me and my pet. So guys, if you need life insurance and you've been putting it off, try Policy Genius. You can compare life insurance online on your own terms in your own time. Policygenius.com, because you should only be forced to speak to an agent if you've committed a federal crime. <laughs> if someone were afraid of the dentist, maybe they haven't been in a long time, maybe they're embarrassed because they haven't been in a while, I feel like this would be a really safe place for them to go and get the care that they need. At Advanced Dentistry, we get it. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, if you want to learn how IV sedation can change your life, visit NoFearDentist.com. You get you get a brief respite from from kind of existential concerns yeah. about the Affordable Care Act, and then several years later, uh, this case starts to bubble up. King versus Burwell, um, a group of conservatives, some of some of the very same ones, um, 
they essentially tried to blow a big hole in Obamacare by arguing that, as written, the law prohibited the federal government from subsidizing health insurance plans unless they were purchased on state-established exchanges rather than the federal government's, like the healthcare.gov uh, exchange. Um, when, when, you know, a lot of us in, 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 like reporters, liberal opinion writers, et cetera, kind of realized that this was mischievous. Um, this wasn't a big heady question about what Congress's ultimate powers are, but just a, you know, an aha, I think, you know, like a, we can take advantage of this little thing we found in the law. When you saw that challenge start to bubble up in lower courts, did you take it seriously? Did it worry you? Did you see it as... Totally, totally seriously. Mm-hmm. I was really worried about it, as were my colleagues in DOJ. And in fact, the lawyers in the Solicitor General's office did something unusual on, that, on those cases. We worked on the papers when they were in the trial court and in the Court of Appeals because we saw the severity of the threat. And you know, if you took just that one statutory phrase of six words yeah, the exchange in, established uh, by, by the, the state. state in isolation, it looked like the other side had the better of the argument. And so- we knew it was a it was a mortal threat, and we took it incredibly seriously, all the way back from when it first came. right from when it first came up. Yeah, what did it say to you about the state of the law of separation of powers, the whole constitutional system, and your part in it? Um, like from my perspective, these were essentially petty legal vandals, right? Like they scoured the law for anything that they could, you know, identify as a point of vulnerability, even if you know, even if in some like larger epistemological sense they knew that that this was not what the law was like law meant was intended to do what the people who wrote the law were trying to do but that because of some phrasing they could they could effectuate a policy result that they wanted and then it gets all the way to the supreme court and then you know it doesn't it's not as as close a call in the final analysis yeah. as NFIB you won that one six to three um but it was you know, unnervingly close for, and people were benefiting from the law at that point. If if it had gone the other way, it would have been like a big calamity. Um, did it trouble you? Did, did you see that as something unique to the politics of the moment, or did it strike you as something that, well, you know, if you know, if liberals were out of power, they would probably be looking for any and all means they could to kind of, you know, unthread a, a conservative law. Um, how did, what was your perspective on the on that challenge? So I wasn't I wasn't surprised by the challenge, but I was troubled by it because the way the challengers framed the thing was that it was a violation of the rule of law, not just a disagreement about what the statute meant, but a violation of the rule of law for the federal government to pay out these subsidies in every state, and. Uh, you know, that framing, again, it got some traction, ultimately not enough, because ultimately when it got to the Supreme Court, I think there was a pretty strong sense that while the challengers may have had credible argument about those five or six words, that at a broader level, this challenge was not on the level. Right. You know, obviously the statute wasn't designed in the way that they were claiming. It would have been insane to do so. And You'd be blowing up this critically important piece of social legislation based on like a lawyer's trick. Right. And, um, but you know that framing of it as being about the rule of law troubled me then. It still does because when you frame everything that you disagree with as a violation of the rule of law, 
uh, then you're sort of cheapening the idea of what that norm of the rule of law means. And this is something liberals have to be careful about too, I think, that um, you know, violation of the rule of law is you know, like the United States against Nixon. That case was about the rule of right. law or Cooper against Aaron where the Supreme Court unanimously said that state officials have to obey federal court desegregation orders. That was about the rule of law. Everything you disagree with is not about the rule of law. So I think that I think unfortunately that kind of the discourse around the rule of law got cheapened over the course of the Obama administration by everything because everything we did was you know uh, alleged to be a, a violation of the rule of law and then liberals started kind of picking up that same approach uh, in the opposite direction. Right. Yeah, there's a I mean we talk a lot at Crooked Media now about. Um, you know, like the difference between propaganda and and journalism, and about you know, uh, uh, you know, approaching uh, matters whether they're political, legal, media, in good faith versus in knowing bad faith. Um, I guess what I mean is that I I saw I felt in the time that King v. Burwell was sort of a, a like a like the conservative legal movement's equivalent of you know. Breitbart or or Sean Hannity's show, just the not that not that anybody was doing anything that should get them disbarred, but that the the pretenses that they had to kind of layer under their legal arguments to make it seem like they weren't just taking a hatchet to a law they didn't like. Um, they troubled me because they were they 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 seemed so knowingly dishonest, and it's not a crime, obviously, to go on in front of a bunch of reporters and. Uh, and, and say something that isn't true, but but it, it felt like a canary in a coal mine to me that, that this had gotten so much traction on the basis of knowing bad faith on the part of not just, you know, uh, pundits or propagandists or whatever, but serious people, supposedly serious people in the law. And maybe that was just, you know, I was too emotionally invested in in the story and in, in the law and, and in the outcome, but... Uh, I wondered if if it looked the same to you, and if 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 it struck you as as a sign that that things were kind of going off the rails, not just not just in politics, but in 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 legal movements too. I have a nuanced view about that. <laughs> There's a way in which I agree with that, but you know, I think the lawyers was perfectly legit for them to seize on this statutory phrase and to apply the tools of statutory interpretation that conservatives favor and say. You have to interpret the statute this way because that's what the words say. You don't have the latitude to change the meaning of the words. Uh, and that, and then had they then gone on and said, and it may be that Congress made a mistake here, but if they made a mistake, so be it. Congress has to fix the mistake. Courts can't fix mistakes in legislation. That's not democratic. And so, yes, you've got to bring this whole law down because Congress made a mistake. That argument to me would have been totally on totally the level. Fine, right? I would have disagreed mm-hmm. with it. The thing that troubled me and I didn't think was on the level was the alternative history that they they grew up around that yeah, legal exactly, argument. Exactly. And where you even had senators writing op-eds saying this is what we intended. Yep. And and then you had in, in the briefing itself this whole alternative history laid out. And you know, that was just baloney, and, and and everybody knew it was baloney. It just was. I mean, that's the way in which I don't know if propaganda is not a fair thing to say. I don't want to say that about you know people I litigated against, but I did feel like 
there just was something not right about creating that whole alternative story and then pumping it out in the blogosphere and pumping it out in op-eds and then seeing it laid out in the briefs in the court. Because, you know, everybody knows it wasn't true. So the moral of that story is you won again. <laughs> uh, you also uh, you also won Obergefell versus Hodges, which is why we now have same-sex marriage in all 50 states. Um, I, I suspect, though, that people like Chief Justice Roberts and Anthony Kennedy didn't come to the Supreme Court thinking they'd end up decisively saving universal health care and, and kind of establishing same-sex marriage as a constitutional right. How did your understanding of their ideological perspective affect the way you made your arguments? It affected it very dramatically, <laughs> but differently in the two sets of right, cases. Right. On health care, just as you said, the dynamic was clear. You had a, progr- a progressive president, and this was the progressive president's most progressive accomplishment, and it was really important. And as a policy matter and a political matter, the chief justice and Justice Kennedy, and as well as Justices Alito and Thomas and Scalia, there was no way that they were going to be disposed in favor of this law. Uh, and so it was imperative to try to think about how to position the argument in a way that would appeal to their sensibilities. And with respect to the health care, the first health care case, I really thought the right way to position it was to put it in a framework that the chief justice would understand as raising an issue that he was committed to, which was the issue of judicial restraint and judicial modesty and letting the democratically accountable branches of government have the latitude to make the judgments that they're entitled to make and that only if you have no choice but to strike the law down on constitutional grounds do you do so. And so we really framed it in terms of, not in terms of this is a good law, you should uphold it, but in terms of you know, it's your duty to uphold it so long as you can interpret it in a way that allows it to be upheld. And if you read it as a tax, you can interpret it as a way that allows it to be upheld, and that's, therefore it's your duty. So we definitely framed that in that way. And then with respect to the second health care case, we actually – in addition to making clear that the court would be bringing the whole system down if it ruled for the challengers, we did try actually to strike a, a, a note that we hoped would appeal to Justice Kennedy as well as the Chief Justice was to say that actually if you respect federalism and the interests of the states, you should be on our side and not the other side, that there's no way a state reading this statute would have thought that if it didn't set up its own exchange that its citizens weren't going to get health care. So right. you're going to be screwing people in those states and screwing those states, and that was against federalism. So we definitely tried to frame it that way. You get to marriage equality, it was a little bit different because in, that was an area in which Justice Kennedy had staked out a strong libertarian position in favor of the rights of gay and lesbian people. Um, and so we, you know, of course, thought about how to position the case in a way that we thought would appeal to him. I don't think we were under any illusions that we were going to get more than five votes in that case. So that was when we really were focusing on what he would do. I, something that struck me as a reporter in both uh, NFIB, the first Obamacare case, and Obergefell was that you closed your arguments, and you kind of alluded to this already, um, with appeals 
almost less to law than to kind of human decency. Um, and I think a lot of theorists would say, well, that isn't supposed to be, you know, the realm of, of the judicial branch, you know, what, what's morally right or, or, or wrong. Um, in NFIB, you said that the ACA's health insurance expansion would help sick and disabled people, quote, secure the blessings of liberty. If I may just say in conclusion that um, it, it, I'd like to take half a step back here, that with this provision, the Medicaid expansion that we're talking about uh, this afternoon and the provisions we talked about yesterday, uh, we've been talking about them in terms of their, their, their uh, effect as measures that uh, solve problems, problems in the economic marketplace uh, that have resulted in millions of people not having health care because they can't afford insurance. There is an important connection, a profound connection, between that problem and liberty. And I do think it's important that we not lose sight of that that in this population of Medicaid-eligible people who will uh, receive health care that they cannot now afford under uh, under this Medicaid expansion, there will be millions of people with chronic conditions like diabetes and heart disease. And as a result of the health care that they will get, they will be unshackled from the disabilities that those diseases put on them and have the opportunity to enjoy the blessings of liberty. And the same thing will be true for uh, for a husband whose wife is diagnosed with breast cancer and who won't face the prospect of being forced into bankruptcy to try to get care for his wife and face the risk of having to raise his children alone. And I could multiply example after example after example. In a very fundamental way, this Medicaid expansion, as well as the provisions we discussed yesterday, Secure the blessings of liberty. Uh, in Obergefell, you said, quote, uh, a world in which uh, gay and lesbian couples live openly as our neighbors. Uh, they raise their children side by side with the rest of us. They contribute fully as members of the community. It is simply untenable to suggest they can be denied the equal, the right of equal participation in an, an institution of marriage. So the emphasis there is on the word untenable. What these gay and lesbian couples are doing is laying claim to the promise of the 14th Amendment now, and it is emphatically the duty of this court in this case, as it was in Lawrence, to decide what the 14th Amendment requires. And what I would suggest is that in a world in which gay and lesbian couples live openly as our neighbors, they raise their children side by side with the rest of us, they contribute fully as members of the community, that it is simply untenable, untenable to suggest that they can be denied the right of equal participation in the institution of marriage or that they be, can be required to wait until the majority decides that it is ready to treat gay and lesbian people as equals. Gay and lesbian people are equal. They deserve the equal protection of the laws, and they deserve it now. Thank you. Was that just how it felt natural to you to close those arguments? Um, or would, would you have made the arguments the same way if the court was, you know, 7-2 liberal, you were 100% confident that you were you were going to win both cases? Or was it an outgrowth of the fact that, you know, these were going to be close cases, you might lose them, 
and you just felt like you needed to remind the justices that their stakes were extremely high and not just you know because of the you know the the questions of what how to reshape the constitution but for the people who the law was intended the, the laws is the the affordable care act uh was intended to benefit both of those arguments the closing and the the healthcare case the closing and the marriage equality case those were deliberate choices i made in advance to say those things uh-huh. i made them both times for multiple reasons um one reason was that i wanted the human cost of ruling against the position I was advocating to be clear and undeniable. But I also thought in both instances that I was making an argument about constitutional law. Uh, It wasn't just a moral claim. It had a moral dimension to it. But that I was making a claim about constitutional law. The phrase secure the blessings of liberty comes from the preamble to the Constitution, right. and it, what it, it's, and the preamble sets forth the reasons why we, the people of the United States, adopted the Constitution. It was to achieve certain ends, and one of those ends was to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity. And so, I thought framing this exercise of Congress's power—yes, an exercise of the tom- commerce power and the tax power—but ultimately, an exercise of Congress's power to do one of the things that the Constitution was put in place to do was making an argument about constitutional law. Now, you wouldn't make that kind of argument about a statute, you know, but when you're talking about the Constitution, it is infused with these paramount values. And so I was trying to, in that sense, make a legal argument. In an Obergefell, I was trying to make a legal argument about what equal protection under the law means, um, that that the question here wasn't one that you could just leave to the majority to decide when the majority was ready to treat gay and lesbian people as equal, that they've come into court and they've invoked the 14th Amendment and said, we have a right to equal protection under the law. We're being denied it. The court is where we're supposed to get it. And then that language that you just quoted was an effort on my part to try to explain why this had to be understood as a denial of equal protection under the law. And so, it, you know, I was hoping to actually achieve multiple things all at once by doing it. But, it. but one of the things I was trying to achieve was actually to say, well, this is how we should be thinking about the Constitution. I think you might uh, – yeah. <laughs> it, it might be worth some, like, democratic political cooperatives listening to you talk about at, at least the, uh, the ACA. Just not it – was, it, was, it, was it was a smart move, I feel like uh, – in the, in the Supreme Court setting. But it's a way of talking about health care that, that even Democratic politicians haven't really, you know, that, that it, sometimes I feel like they talk about it uh, as kind of like a, a charity that the government gives to poor people or people who can't fend for themselves and almost never about this is, this is some, something that allows all of us to be free persons because we were, you know, liberated in some sense from the like, yoke of, of not being able to afford treatment for illness um, well, I think that is what it's all about. And it's sort of happening now. I mean, the irony of it is that, to me at least, over the last year, that given President Trump and the Republican majority's efforts to extinguish it, um, that, that has caused people actually to appreciate that it ought to be thought about as a fundamental right. Yeah. It's something you ought to have. And, then, and that's another way of thinking about that liberty idea that, 
there's a reason why you consider it a fundamental right, which is that it makes, makes the ability to enjoy the blessings of liberty possible. How in general do you think about the court as an institution that spans both politics and law? Um, like what did, you, what did you learn about the court's perception of itself as an institution in American public life? And how did your awareness of that perception affect your advocacy, right? That, that you're not just arguing to, you know, to like human computers who spit out what the proper interpretation of law or constitution is, but that those decisions are going to affect the way people view the legitimacy of the court, and that's in their mind too. Yes. So I've got a complicated set of thoughts about that. <laughs> uh, uh, but, you know, one thing that struck me, and I really think this is true, people defend the court on this ground, and I think it's a, a correct defense and say it's not a political body um, that justices are just acting in conformity with what their judicial philosophy tells them the answer should be. I really think that's what's going on in the main, um, that they come to the court with well-developed judicial philosophies. Those judicial philosophies differ, you know, among the justices. And they generally process cases in conformity with their approach, their judicial philosophy, and it generates answers. Now, of course, they're chosen by a political process because they have that particular judicial philosophy. So there's a way in which you can think about it as politics at one remove. But I don't think that they are, in fact, acting politically when they decide cases. And I don't think that they, um, and I don't think that they, that it's fair to caricature them as acting politically. I don't think that's what they're doing. Um, but they do also consider their the, what it means to exercise the power they have, which is an awesome power. And so I do think it's important, you know, not on your average statutory construction case about insurance law or something, but on the cases that really matter, being able to convey to that to the justices that this is an appropriate exercise of your authority. This is what you are here for. It's legitimate to do it, and it's legitimate to do it now. That was, you know, the Obergefell, the marriage equality case, was a particularly strong example of that. You know, we could, you remember a few years earlier, there was a case called Hollingsworth against Perry coming out of California, Proposition 8, which brought to the court for the first time the question of whether the Constitution ought to guarantee a right to marriage equality. And the court ducked the issue, said it wasn't properly in front of them because of uh, parties didn't have standing. Um, you know, I argued in that case, and I argued a very careful doctrinal, you know, here's what the law requires, here's why it's met. The, the argument went over like a lead balloon, <laughs> and it was really not effective at all. And I realized in retrospect, you know, fortunately, by the time of Obergefell, I had realized this because, well, you know, the question in a case like Obergefell is, well, should the courts be doing this or should the majoritarian branches of government be doing it? And should it be done now or should it wait? And that, so I just decided that's what I was going to talk about. Those were the things that mattered. They weren't doctrinal questions, but they were questions of constitutional law. There were questions, you know, is this a situation in which the Constitution empowers the court to intervene? And so I thought it was just necessary to, to talk about those big issues, even though they, you know, as I said, they just weren't doctrinal issues, but they still were questions about how, how do you interpret and apply the Constitution. So we've transitioned from the Obama era 
and uh, a liberal administration arguing before conservative court into the Trump era where the court is still conservative. Um, but the administration, it's really as much authoritarian as it is politically conservative. Um, and we saw that in the travel ban and in, you know, in the way Donald Trump uh, conducts himself vis-a-vis the Justice Department. Has that transition changed your views about the role of constitutional advocacy and law in America from, you know, did it open your eyes to something that you hadn't considered about your own profession? So I think I, even before the election of President Trump and even before the events of the last year unfolded, I came away from my experience as Solicitor General with an overall sense that it would be better for the court to defer more to the majoritarian branches of government because in the main, I think courts are conservative and sometimes even reactionary institutions and they're in some way they're almost designed to be mm-hmm. that way and that while you are sometimes going to get decisions of monumental importance like Obergefell or Brown against Board of Education, you know, a lot of times you're going to get decisions that frustrate progressive social advance and progressive policies and that therefore you know, a particular level of judicial humility would be a good thing. Um, now, so th- that's how I came out of my experience. I still think that's true, but I do think that you know, we are in a time now that from my perspective – where we're in a time now where our commitment to the rule of law is really being tested and courts alone can't preserve the rule of law. You know, if it really breaks down institutionally and if the public doesn't mobilize in response to those breakdowns, then the courts alone can't do it. But the courts do have a really important role to play as they did in the United States against Nixon. You know, when they said to President Nixon, no, you're going to turn over those tapes in response to a court order. Um, and, you know, that um, – a moment like that may well be upon us in the next whatever year, 18 months. And I don't think humility is the right stance <laughs> for justices <laughs> under that set of circumstances. So, you know, I don't have an entirely consistent point of view on it, I guess, um, because there's I mean, it sounds like what you're saying uh, is that there – it is in some sense right. You know, uh, I, I've, I've read arguments that, you know, the court is throwing its shoulder too much into this fight – the, not the, not just the court, the yeah. courts, yeah, and and that they're going to regret that when we, you know, if, if we ever return to some regular, you know, some normal system where we have a normal president uh, who can be counted on to abide by, uh, you know, court orders, and there's like a, the presumption of regularity. Um, and it sounds to me like what you're saying is not it. it, it they haven't been putting their shoulder in this too much. That it's proper. In a, in an environment like this, for um, for the court to be kind of a bulwark, um, even if you wouldn't expect it to be under different circumstances, and you might even think it was wrong under different circumstances. Totally, okay. yeah, totally. You know, and I think about the first of the travel bans in particular. You know, that thing was so not on the level, done in six days, written by two guys in the White House, no process, no consultation with any of the experts in the executive branch who know anything about national security or immigration policy or anything else. 
had the courts applied the sort of usual standards of deference in that circumstance, saying, well, it's immigration, it's national security, hands off, that would have sent a chilling signal, it seems to me, that um, that all bets are off, that the norms don't really matter. Because the reason that the executive branch gets deference in our system essentially from the courts is the courts presume that they act that the executive acts on the level, that they make decisions based on their best judgment after doing the analysis you would need to do to make a good policy judgment and that the reasons they give for the actions they take are are real and that when that's so manifestly untrue, if the courts were to bless were to have blessed it, it would have been a disaster. And you know, now the argument's a closer argument because the courts invalidated it and the executive branch went back to the drawing board and they got largely stymied again and then they went back to the drawing board again. But with each trip back to the drawing board, they're engaging in more policy research, they're making more nuanced judgments. There's a way in which that interplay between the uh, courts and the executive branch is trying to bring the executive into line with the norms that our system really depends on for its healthy functioning. And we can argue with respect to the third travel ban whether they've gotten there or not and, or, or, and, and what kind of deference it's due and whether the taint of the original discriminatory purpose is still affixed to it. Um, but, boy, just imagine the universe we'd have if the courts hadn't done that right. back in February. So I'm glad we've uh, we avoided turning this into a, this conversation into like a digest about current litigation before the court. But we should probably touch on at least parts of the current docket. Um, and you know, uh, if there's any that you think merit special attention, I open the floor to you. Um, if not, I got a couple. Why don't you go ahead? <laughs> okay. Um, your big return to the Supreme Court is uh, going to be masterpiece cake shop. Is that right? Yeah. So I've just filed an amicus brief right. in that case, but I did file an amicus brief, and I was very for the American Bar Association, I was very glad to have the chance to do it because that was one. The, 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 yeah, that's sure. the one. That's the one about whether uh, whether you know a, a a baker or I guess any kind of artisan right. uh, who opposes same sex marriage should be should have to uh, should have to serve gays and lesbians, basically. Right. Basically, you know, Colorado has a law that says you can't discriminate against gay and lesbian people or you can't discriminate on the basis of color or for multiple other reasons in public accommodations. And that applies to people who run businesses like a cake shop. And uh, so cake shop owners said, well, I oppose uh, marriage equality, same-sex marriage, so I'm not going to bake a cake for, uh, for a gay couple to celebrate their wedding. And because a cake involves my own artistic expression, I have a First Amendment right not to bake that cake. And also because my religious principles uh, are, are antithetical to same-sex marriage, it would violate my free exercise of religion to require me to bake this cake. And the state of Colorado said, no, those aren't valid justifications. And we wrote a brief that tried to take a historical perspective there and say, you know, these very same kinds of arguments were made back in the 1960s, both before Congress enacted the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and after it when in the courts when Congress when, when it was enforced. The people came in and said, my religious beliefs require segregation. I, my religious beliefs forbid me from serving black people in my restaurant or having black people stay in my hotel. And some people said my right of freedom association 
is infringed by requiring me to have black people stay in my hotel. And some people even made free speech arguments like the ones being made now. And the courts rejected those arguments. And I think had they not rejected them, then those principles uh, that the Civil Rights Act made into law never would have taken root in the way they did. They would have always been subject to contest. Uh, and and so there's a real concern now that if these claims are validated, you're going to have the same, you're going to have the effect that we didn't have back 50 years ago. And the thing that me, to me, that was particularly troubling, you know, I, I, I don't want to criticize my successors in the SG's office. You know, having sat in that chair, it's a really hard job. You've got to make really hard calls. People are going to be angry at you. You're going to be subject to political criticism. But this one in particular was one that troubled me a little bit because, you know, the Department of Justice has a responsibility to enforce the federal civil rights laws, the federal laws that prohibit discrimination in public accommodations and prohibit discrimination in employment. And for the and the federal government came in in this case and uh, on the side of the baker and said that the court ought to recognize a First Amendment exception that allows people to uh, get out from under the requirements of equal treatment in these laws. And boy, you know, you're inviting, to my mind at least, they were inviting the court to blow a hole in a law that it's their responsibility to enforce. And so I just found that to be troubling. Is this puts me in the kind of same headspace I was in uh, around Hobby Lobby, around the, you know, the exception that, that John Roberts created yeah. that, you know, set aside what the laws say and what you think is proper, but that, you know, maybe there is a difference between like the Acme Baking Company, a big industrial corporation with dozens or hundreds or thousands of employees and, you know, merry old fashioned toiling away in her kitchen as a sole proprietor, she doesn't have employees. She just doesn't. Uh, she isn't uh, fond of modern norms around uh, around marriage or around uh, around the country's tolerance for yeah. gays and lesbians. Um, and uh, do you see that that distinction as being kind of neither here nor there for the purposes of the law, like uh, compelling a single individual versus a a company with many employees that have extensive federal benefits and regulatory obligations. I get it. I totally get it. These issues are hard and I don't mean to minimize them. The, I, and, the, to, and to be, and to be, yeah. just so our listeners, yeah. I, I was just playing devil's advocate. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I, good. <laughs> good. So, and, but, but I'm not in the sense of recognize these are hard issues, I think. And particularly when you're thinking about the sole proprietor or the, you know, the kosher deli or whatever it is with respect to a religious claim. Um, and I, and I get that. The problem is, once you recognize the First Amendment claim, how are you going to cabinet in that way? You know, if, uh, if the First Amendment protects my, uh, my right not to serve people I don't want to serve, um, then, and, you know, if, that, if an individual can do it, then given the way corporations are treated under the First Amendment, why can't corporations do it? And well, why well, don't they have help? You know, I suppose then a, a you know a, a, a corporate baking company could say, "I'm going to exercise my First Amendment right to only hire people who will also exercise their First Amendment right not to." Sure. And suddenly you have a whole company that won't that won't abide by the. Sure. Well, you know, we know from Citizens United and other cases that uh, you know under the current First Amendment doctrine, not that I agree with it, but under the current First Amendment doctrine, corporations have 
First Amendment rights that are fully equivalent to those of individuals. And so the, that's the scary part about the case to me. You recognize it with respect to the individual. I, I just don't see a principled basis for cabining right. it there. It, so it is different in that sense from Hobby Lobby where yeah. he said, well, you know, if it's a closely held company, family business, whatever, they can have. Um, yeah, maybe you could draw some lines in that context. Right, right. right. Yeah. Um, so I want to close where we started uh, on what struck me uh, as a troubling attempt by the attempt by the Trump DOJ to get the Supreme Court to sanction um, ACLU lawyers representing uh, an unnamed 17-year-old girl, uh, an unauthorized immigrant, and she was pregnant and wanted an abortion. Um, this is the Jane Doe case. Right? Uh, it didn't go before the Supreme Court, but um, immigration officials in the Trump administration tried to prevent her from obtaining the abortion. Um, the courts ultimately decided with Jane Doe. Uh, while the administration was deciding what to do next, Jane Doe received her abortion. And now the Trump DOJ says the girl's attorneys misled the government and the ju- and the judiciary. And, I mean, obviously a Republican administration wasn't going to like the decision or the outcome. Um, but it struck me and others, I mainly – I'm mainly, you know, cribbing this analysis from uh, from things, articles I've read online, um, th- that this is more than just a vindictive attempt to punish these specific lawyers that beat them, which would be bad enough in itself, but an attempt to intimidate litigators in general against taking positions against the government. Is that – do you see what yeah, happened so in this case? I'm not ready to go there to draw that conclusion, you know. What that filing asking for sanctions and accusing the lawyers of dishonesty was extremely unusual. Right. Uh, the lawyers in the SG's office who decided to file it must feel strongly aggrieved. Uh, we haven't seen the other side of the story yet because right. the SCLU's got to file its papers. But um, even if they felt strongly aggrieved, Man, they have thrown a hand grenade into the lap of the Supreme Court justices. You know, what are they supposed to do with this, the Supreme Court justices? And so, um, you know, it's it's going to be a really hard thing for the court to deal with. Um, I there it, whether intended or not, there may be some effect on future litigants, and that you know, one thing, for example, that a filing like this does is raise some doubt. Now, I'm not saying legitimate doubt. I, I would be very surprised if there's a legitimate argument here um, uh, against what the ACL lawyer, ACLU lawyers did. But, you know, it's not like they're only before the court in this case. In fact, they're before the court in Masterpiece Cake Shop, the case we were just discussing, and numerous other cases this term, and the ACLU is before the court frequently. And so one thing that you have done is raise a question about the integrity of the lawyers who are appearing on behalf of numerous entities on really important cases in front of the court. And that's that's a troubling thing. Um, so, you know, maybe the facts are what the government says and maybe, um, maybe uh, their sense of agreement was, was justified. Uh, you know, we'll see what, we'll see what they say, but, but, They've taken a step that has a lot of consequences and, and a lot of consequences that are bad, you know, bad for the court, bad for the legitimacy of, the, of other advocates and just not a good situation. If, uh, if it's as you assume, as, as I think is widely assumed that there is not much there, 
but they've nonetheless thrown the grenade, as you say, into the Supreme Court's hand. Would it be appropriate for the Supreme Court to kind of tongue lash the Justice Department and say, you know, there's a special relationship between the SG's office, the Supreme Court. We need to expect you to adhere to high standards. And, you know, if there's nothing there, why did you give this to us? And, you know, don't do it again. I would be surprised to see that. I think that the most likely outcome is that the ACLU will file its response and there'll be a one-word order <laughs> denying the petition <laughs> because because otherwise, the, whatever, if the court does anything here, it's drawing itself into the middle of this controversy and then the court's own legitimacy becomes somewhat at stake in this situation. So uh, I So I just think that the most likely course for them, if they can avoid saying anything, is to avoid saying anything. Is setting aside this specific case, yeah. just to kind of wrap this all up, is, yeah. is, is this what you would have expected out of any justice? Dep- you said it was an extraordinary step um, to file this complaint. Um, is this what you'd expect out of any justice department with a, you know, very conservative attorney general? Uh, or is it kind of reasonable for people to be concerned that the Trump-driven efforts that we discussed at the beginning of this conversation to kind of politicize, stick the political finger in a, in a, in a rule of law could end up seeping into other parts of the Justice Department, such as the SG's office, such as well, anywhere, uh, um, and, and, and extending our, our basis for alarm outside of just these questions of federal prosecution and, and so on? So I really wrestle with this. And the reason I wrestle with it is because when I was there, I was accused of these things. And not only me, of course, other officials in the department, Eric Holder and others, but you know, across a range of issues. For example, Obergefell. I know I was accused of abandoning the legal mission of the department and, uh, and doing things for political reasons. And, uh, and in uh, Windsor, the case about the Defense of Marriage Act, same thing, and other situations as well. I didn't think sitting in that chair that I was doing what I was mm-hmm. being accused of doing. I thought I was carrying out my responsibilities in a way that was consistent with the independence of the department and the integrity of the rule of law. Um, but not everybody thought that. And so I'm definitely having the reaction now <laughs> that uh, that I'm concerned about some things. You know, some things I get and make sense. Like, for example, the the government in the clean power plan case, you know, they went to the court and said, you know, we're going to pull this order, so we're not going to defend it anymore. You know, that's one of those things that's in the bucket of elections have consequences. Yeah. They're going to change their policy. Fine. You know, they get to do that. Some other things have troubled me more um, and do make me worry that, that the that sense of independence and making independent judgments for the right reasons um, could be under some pressure now. But as I said, I'm trying to be fair about this because that, that's definitely what conservative critics thought about me and about the Obama administration under some circumstances. You're being your own devil's advocate here. So it's, it's good to put yourself in the shoes of uh, even the people that you're – Instinct is to be critical of and to have ballast yeah. and, to, and to not necessarily knee-jerk every time something that seems extraordinary happens. Um, do you have any closing thoughts for us? So I, I loved having this conversation. <laughs> it, was, it was really great. And 
I guess not to close on a pessimistic note, and I'm not sure this is pessimistic, but you know, I think we're about to sail into some really turbulent waters here. And with respect to the rule of law and what it means to us and, and our ability to preserve it, I think that in the near term, the next year or so, that's principally not going to be a struggle in the courts. It may make its way to the courts, but I think it's principally going to be a struggle around the way executive power is exercised, you know, whether people get fired or not, whether people get pardoned or not, whether decisions about who to prosecute are made with integrity or not. And I do feel like, and I know this is something that, um, you know, on the pod all the time, people focus on, and it's really important that public mobilization around those kinds of issues is going to be just as important as public mobilization around health care or around the tax bill now and other things. Because I really think if you don't have a high level of public engagement and a high level of public outrage, if we get to the precipice here, then these bad things are going to happen. And, uh, and it's going to be very hard for courts to undo them. To translate for our listeners, if Trump fires Robert Mueller's, you take to the streets. <laughs> Something along those lines, right? Yeah. Don Brilly, thank you so much for taking all this time with us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. It was great. Thank you for listening. Next on Crooked Conversations, Julissa Arce talks to Cenk Uger of the Young Turks about Wall Street. Is there a role for Wall Street and banks in the financial industry? Of course! You're crazy if you think there isn't. You'll crater the entire economy and it just can't work. And we've seen that throughout history. And the proper role for them is to fund businesses and homes and cars. The proper role for them is not to fund politicians. Tune in. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Mr. Hamburglar. Rubble, rubble. He said, of all the McDonald's burgers I've ever hamburgled, these are the hottest, juiciest, and tastiest. Rubble. Hurry in and enjoy one of our 350 bundles, like a daily double and small fries for a limited time. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any of the offer comparison of prior classic burgers. ba ba ba